Welcome to Timothy Eden Memorial Church, a place for life. Connect, participate, celebrate. Our text for today comes from the Bible. It quotes the Bible, but the people in the story don't know the Bible. Herod is a puppet king of the Jews. And when he hears that a new king of the Jews has been born, he doesn't like it one bit. And so he asks all his religious advisors where the king of the Jews is supposed to be born. Now, stop right there. How much attention has Herod been paying in church? Not to know that. He could have used just one of our Sunday school lessons, just one of our Alpha classes, just one of Pastor Lori's discipleship courses. And then he would have known. These magi, traditionally called kings, also don't know the Bible. But it's not their fault. They know the stars. They're really astrologers. Their religion is to look for signs of what the gods want in the heavens. They're not from Israel. They're from far away. From the east, Scripture says. We don't know where. Could be from Persia, modern Iran, could be from Parthia, Rome's enemy, but no one knows. They come following a moving star. Now you'll notice there's not a lot of stargazing in the Bible. The Jews are not stargazing people. Now they knew some of their neighbors were, and they rejected that way of knowing God as idolatrous. Jews learn about God from the Bible, from reliving the stories, not by following the stars. So these magi belong to some other religion. If we were being rude, we would say it's a pagan religion. They're foolish enough to seek out signs in the heavens. So I want you to notice this because it's rich. Israel's Messiah is born, the Savior of the world, and who notices not Israel, not the leaders of the people, not the good religious types, not us. But in fact, these foreign, pagan, stargazing enemies, they're the ones who notice. Have you ever noticed how Jesus seems to attract all the wrong people to himself? Now, there's wisdom here for speaking kindly of other religions and speaking humbly of ours, and how far short we fall of our own faith. Now, if you'll bear with me, I want to try an experiment. I'd like to intertwine my sermon with We Three Kings. It's really an epiphany hymn. Epiphany means, aha, or, oh, that's the way things are. Epiphany means illumination. Now, I do this partly because I love this hymn, and I'm sad to see Christmas season go, but I also want to show what we can learn from every hymn. We sing in here not to pass the time. We sing so that the words will burrow deep down in our souls and make something new out of us. So no need to stand. Let's just sit and sing stanza one together. We three kings of Orient are 
first gift is gold, because Jesus is a king receiving a royal gift. But gold is also a strange gift. What does a baby need with gold? A baby needs a rattle. A baby is fascinated by a bug or by her own fist. I remember us taking our small children to the zoo for the first time and trying to get them excited that there were elephants right there. And one of our kids said, yeah, dad, and there are ants right down here on the ground. That gold will make sense soon enough. This vulnerable little family will be on the run for its life as refugees from Herod. They'll go to Egypt. How does this poor family make that trip? Well, the church has figured by spending this royal gift of gold. Look at how God provides. A writer I admire points out where gold comes from. Deep in the earth, it has to be hauled out at great expense and then burned with fire to be purified and pounded into shape. But then, gold can be both useful and beautiful. So too with us. We have gifts deep inside us. They're difficult to bring out, painful to purify with fire. But then, they can be both beautiful and useful. I visited with some of you the last few days, and Two of you that I visited with in a row work in opera. Never in my whole life have I talked to someone who makes a living in opera. It must mean something. Now, it's clear enough how singing beautifies our worship. I met with another one of you who plans events, and I thought, perfect. Jesus wants to throw more parties for his neighbors right here. A church I served once had a man about to join And he thought he was too cool for this what's-your-gift game. And so he said, well, I collect comic books. Well, guess who was perfect to relate to the teenagers in the trailer park where we were starting a new ministry? A guy 50 years older than them, comic book man. Do you see how God can take whatever strange gift we have to offer and put it to use by the church giving it away to its neighbors? Now, Let's turn to verse 2, and as we do, I want you to think, what strange gift has God given to me that I should give away through His church? Thank you. 
frankincense, a sign of divinity. We don't usually use incense in Protestant churches, and maybe this story tells you why. I got to be in charge of the chapel at my divinity school, digging around in the treasures in the vestry, I found a censer and some incense. And I thought, what's the worst that can happen? So I lit that thing up, and the room filled with smoke. People ran out coughing. One lady fainted. The fire alarm they discovered didn't actually work. I asked someone who knew what they were doing how long that brick of incense was supposed to last. Four months. I burned it in 20 minutes. Oops. Incense smells strong. The smoke rises up toward God and disappears. And what it says about us is that everyone has a prayer inside them. It just has to be let loose by fire. Have you ever noticed how powerful a sense our smell is? You can smell something and immediately you're yanked back into a memory from decades before. Or you can swear you smell the cooking of someone you loved who's been gone for years. But if you try and grab for that smell, for that memory, it's off through your fingers like smoke. It's elusive like God. The hymn sings, incense owns a deity nigh. Incense is a sign of divinity. This little one reigns. St. Ephraim the Syrian says that on Christmas, the reins of the universe are handed to a baby. Get ready for a bumpy ride. Right now, we who follow Jesus know that he rules. One day, everyone will see that he does. Have a look at the painting in your bulletin. It's on page 13. It's too small here. One day soon we'll have screens and we'll all be illumined for such things. Our forebears loved this image of the Magi coming to the Holy Family. Often you'll see Mary and Joseph and Jesus in a ruined building. It's a sign that the old truths have decayed. Now that the truth in person is cooing, in Mary's lap. The Magi are leading a train of people, countless throngs, all humanity coming to Jesus. And the three kings are often depicted as coming from different continents, one from Asia, one from Africa, one from Europe. God loves everyone God has made and longs to draw all people to himself. I wonder What surprising persons does God long to draw to himself here, now, this year? A family visiting for the first time at the 915 service saw the title, Unexpected Guests, and they said, that's us. We're the unexpected guests from right out of the Bible into your life. Let's sing verse 2. Verse 3, you know which one.
The next stanza speaks of myrrh, a bitter perfume. I preached on this passage once, and a massage therapist brought me her surprising gift, cotton ball dipped once in myrrh. She held it under my nose, and I almost passed out. That stuff can raise the dead. In the hymn, it's a sign of Christ's coming death. Not to throw too big a damper on the party, but Christ is born to die. In icons of his birth, his nativity clothes look like grave clothes. Myrrh is bitter. For now, all these Gentiles, all these wrong people come to worship the king of the Jews. Later, another so-called king of the Jews, Herod Antipas, will execute Jesus. Other Gentiles will write, King of the Jews, above his cross. His crown will be thorns, his throne a cross. And his few friends left will anoint his dead body with, you guessed it, myrrh. But the hymn writer didn't know everything. No one does. Myrrh was also a medicine in the ancient world. This third gift could also show us that Christ heals. Now, some of you suffering right now would like to know when Christ heals. So would I. I don't know, and no one does. I do know this. Christ one day heals everything that hurts. He absorbs all of our ailments, all of our sorrow, all of our death, and gives us back life and nothing but life. Now, let's sing once more, shall we? God getting born winds up in death. And yet, and yet, in some way beyond our ways, this death means life for the world. Sealed in stone-cold tomb, but the seal will fail. The only thing that's actually been killed is death itself. T.S. Eliot imagines the wise men returning home this way. We return to our places, these kingdoms, but no longer at ease here in this old dispensation, with an alien people clutching their gods. I should be glad of another death. These astrologers made their livelihood seeking signs in the stars, but now that their own stars have pointed the way to the true king, they're out of a job, <laughs> and they have to change their whole way of life. You and I also have to change our whole way of life in the presence of Jesus. And not just once when we come to faith or are baptized, but again and again we come to him anew. 
Sergei Bulgakov is a great Russian Orthodox thinker, says this, the wise men recognized his birth was also the beginning of the way to Golgotha. The crib was the symbol of the grave. But this is good news, the strangest sort of good news there could be. Death in Christ is actually life. It is resurrection in him. Dear Russia, please return to your orthodox roots and its deep peace. In the Bible, that's what enemies are for, to be converted into friends. I love the word sighing in that last verse. Every sigh will be transfigured into praise. You'll see. One day everyone will see. Let's sing this great hymn one last time. Bethlehem, where Jesus is born, means house of bread in Hebrew. House of bread. What could be more perfect for Communion Sunday? I like to invite folks to communion this time of year by pointing out Jesus is laid in a manger that is a feed trough for animals. The reason is so that all of us, God's animals, can gather around and gobble him up. The Lord's Supper works backwards from ordinary food. The way food usually works is you chew it, eat it, swallow it, digest it, and it becomes part of your body. With the Lord's Supper, we chew it, and it digests us and makes us into the body of Christ. No one knows how that happens. We just know that it does. So we'll come forward in a moment to bring our strange gifts to the Christ child, and will receive in return his gift of his body and blood. Alleluia, alleluia, sounds through earth and skies. Amen.